Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday the 9th of April. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, fresh from our You Ask Us special episode last week, we're very pleased to say we have another guest episode this week. So before we get on to our main conversation, Emily, what's been a moment of the week that you think is particularly significant in world affairs? Yeah, this isn't a moment, it's more a series of moments, which is that tension is once again rising between Ukraine and Russia. There's a Russian troop buildup on the Ukrainian border and Russian powers that, that be are sort of hinting at we would go in to support our Russian speakers. Obviously, all of this goes back to 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea and also provided support, shall we say, to um, separatists in the East. I don't want to say we'll see if this becomes a full-blown war, because there has been killing and dying this whole time, and particularly in recent weeks. But that did happen this week, and we will continue to watch to see if it escalates further. And what is your moment from this past week that you think will go down in history? So I'd just add to your, your comment that we have a, a very good piece explaining the current situation by our colleague Ido Fock on the New Statesman website. So I'd encourage listeners to look out for that. And we'll probably have him on, I think, the podcast soon to talk about this, especially as the story develops. I think another significant moment of the week was that on Tuesday, the government of Mozambique retook the town of Parma, which is a gas-producing town in the country's north on the Indian Ocean um, that had been occupied by Islamist militants about 10 days beforehand. There have been reports of terrible violence in the town. There is ongoing fighting and refugees are fleeing towards the nearby northern Mozambique border with Tanzania. So I think that is something well worth noting and also well worth watching. There is a lot of concern about the rise of Islamist militancy in that part of Africa, and I think worth paying attention to. So with that, why don't you introduce our guest, Emily? I am thrilled that we have on the podcast this week, Alex Vitali, who is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College, and also the author of The End of Policing, which since this is an international podcast, I will say that it's going truly international. There is a Spanish edition coming out in May, a Korean edition coming out in June. Obviously, you can read the English version now, and a second edition of it will be coming out later this year. So The End of Policing is a worldwide, a truly global book, and we are thrilled to have its author with us today. Alex Vitale, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're most welcome, Emily and, and Jeremy. Last year, you did an interview with our colleague, Sophie McBain, about the end of policing. And one of the things that I think comes up 
you know, especially when people talk about defund the police is it's sort of received with, you don't really mean defund the police, you mean reform, or you mean, you know, something that's not what the words actually say. And you make the point in this interview that no, I, I do mean defund the police. And I mean, that is a beginning, not an end point. A year later, do you think that that's more understood now? Yeah, I think it is. There's a lot more clarity because we've won some very concrete victories along these lines. And it's really about what can we do to more justly and effectively produce public safety for people? And we've been caught in this mindset that policing is the only possible tool we could use to do that. And then when the results of that are racially unequal, are violent, we're told, well, let's just fix that with some some little tweaks to policy and, and some body cameras and implicit bias training. And what the movement has said over this last year so clearly is that we don't think those reforms are going to fit the bill and that what we need is to reduce our reliance on policing and instead invest in community-based strategies for producing real public safety for people. Would you describe it as an incrementalist movement? Because it's obviously associated with this very absolute goal, you know, to, to defund the police and for many to, in the long term, abolish the police. But do you see it as a case of, of step-by-step reform? Absolutely. Some people on the right have tried to disparage the movement by saying, well, they just want to erase all police and then everybody will be on their own and it'll be chaos. And that's not what anyone who's actually doing this work is saying. And even if they were saying that, it's not possible, right? There's no city council that's going to zero out the police budget because we had a protest one day, right? What there is, is developing concrete programmatic interventions to address specific public safety challenges and then reducing the role of policing that arena. So let's get the police out of the schools and hire more counselors, create restorative justice programs, provide more supports for young people. Let's get police out of the mental health business, create community-based mental health services, non-police crisis response units, et cetera. I want to sort of zoom out in a bit, but first, I, you know, you, you said that there have been some concrete victories won. Recently, President Biden announced funding to community-based anti-violence intervention. Is that the sort of thing that you think that we should be moving toward? Or do you think, no, that's, that's not what I had in mind at all? No, I think the $5 billion for community-based anti-violence initiatives could be uh, really significant. That is the kind of thing people are calling for, at least on one side of the ledger. On the other side of the ledger, he also wants to put hundreds of millions of additional dollars into more local policing and right. federal local task forces. So it's a bit of a mixed bill here, but I do think that those new investments in specifically non-police intervention is, is very exciting, and that's going to allow us to create more facts on the ground, so to speak, that show what these alternatives could look like. We'll evaluate their success, look for best practices, and I think that's going to help create more momentum. So your book first appeared in 2017, obviously a couple of years before the recent protest movements where some of its arguments have you know, really spread around the world. And indeed, the cause of defunding the police has spread around the world. Did it surprise you that that happened, particularly last year? I mean, obviously, a lot of that was in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. But tragically, that's not the first such incident. So, I mean, did it surprise you that that particular incident became such a a motivating global cause? 
Well, that that incident became such a big deal didn't completely surprise me, only because when the book did come out in 2017, there was a lot of interest in it initially. And I was very busy traveling around the country and, and internationally, but mostly under the radar, not getting big national coverage and stuff like that. But I was aware that this movement was percolating at a local level and that this new analysis was kind of taking hold in a lot of places. So it didn't surprise me that no one this past summer was holding up a sign saying, you know, more money for implicit bias training, that instead the analysis had shifted to reducing and replacing the scope of policing. It seems like there's this increased consciousness that police are actually, wait a minute, not necessarily a force for good, right? And in fact, can be a force for ill and harm in many communities. And yet, at the same time, it's still the go-to for so many, right? You already mentioned Biden calling for additional police officers in various communities. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio suggested that the NYPD should investigate hate crimes, which, again, if you've been listening to people who have been explaining what's wrong with the police force, part of it is that they are, if not committing what could be considered hate crimes themselves, then I don't want to be too dramatic about this, but when you have the police officer who's announcing that the suspect in the Atlanta shooting that killed several Asian women say, oh, well, he had a bad day. Like the idea that that person is then going to go investigate hate crimes seems ludicrous. And yet it keeps being offered as the solution. Why is this still the go-to for so many politicians, even after the past year? Well, and we just saw that in the UK, right? The, the police deciding whether or not people can have a protest about the behavior of the police. And surprise, surprise, they didn't handle that very well, right? Yeah, I think we're still in this moment where the safe bet for elected officials is to go with what they've always gone with. And part of that has been always a strategy of reducing their own responsibility for the social problems that are being turned over to police. So the policing has been a tool that politicians can use to paper over the failure to have a rational housing policy, the failure to provide universal high-quality health care, the failure to properly fund schools. So the problems that manifest as a result of those defundings of crucial social services then gets turned over to the police to put a lid on the symptoms of that. And so that is still the dominant politics in the United States. And what we're doing is we're trying to chip away at that and show that there's a different logic, one that's rooted in care and compassion and solidarity, rather than one that's rooted in coercion and control and, and punishment. I'm so glad that you brought up the protest and police brutality in the UK, because I wanted to ask you, do you see the movements as similar in the US or UK or different? I think there's a similar tension that's at work in both places, right? There's still a lot of folks in the U.S. whose primary focus is on a kind of justice for approach so mm -hmm. that a high profile police killing happens and the family and people in the community want justice for that person. And what justice tends to mean in that conversation is some punishment for the officer. That is still like the dominant mode in much of Europe, the efforts to like address abusive policing take root in these campaigns justice for. But we are starting to see this other more abolitionist analysis that says those justice for campaigns in and of themselves are not going to transform policing, are not going to reduce the burden of policing on already over-policed communities. 
And so interestingly, you know, this new police bill in the UK, it expands not just police power over protests, but as you mentioned before, it expands police power to deal with, let's say, things like violence against women and hate crimes, as if this is to appeal to the left to say, it's okay, we're expanding police power because it's to do good. But there have been a lot of very clear voices in the UK that say, actually, we don't think more police power is how we protect the safety of women, since police have historically been a threat to the safety of women in very concrete ways, including the recent protests. So I think that this is still being you know, debated within the movement about what the bright balance is between these different approaches. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. I'd like to come on to that big picture question about where it is right to row back police power and what you put in its place to solve social problems. But more immediately, how much of a debate is there about this sort of thing within police forces, either in the US or elsewhere? Because covering some of this stuff from Germany, it's interesting that there have been cases analogous to the recent scandals in the police in the US and the UK. There have been cases, for example, of sort of racist networks operating within German police forces. But then you you also have voices that, while I don't think they'd go as far to say abolish the police, are certainly pushing in another direction. I mean, famously in the German media, there's a, a police officer called Oliver von Dobrowolski, who's head of a, a kind of group of police officers affiliated with the Green Party here. And they campaign for police reform and for tackling, for example, racism within police forces. They're also an interesting voice on things like drug policy, on decriminalizing certain things to, to scale back the, the over-policing of elements of society. How representative is that? I mean, have you come, come across in your research elements of police forces that are willing to have a conversation about, about reform, about scaling back some of their activities or passing those responsibilities to other parts of the public sector? What's been the response from, from your side? There's really a big debate within policing or, or it's a struggle within policing. So in the United States in particular, you see this in relationship to things like police unions that have taken a very conservative line that says that police are, in fact, the best tool to deal with every social problem, that maintaining and expanding police power is essential to maintain civilization as we know it, and that any effort to interfere with police power through greater oversight, regulation, or reducing their role in society will bring about chaos in the streets. On the other hand, you have police reformers. Many of the people in leadership in our big police departments acknowledge that police are doing too much, that there's a problem in the relationship between police and heavily policed communities, but their solution to this is a set of procedural reforms that are designed to enhance the legitimacy of policing without questioning their basic role in society and this this huge scope and what they do. And even when they say, well, yes, we don't really want to be in the homelessness business or the mental health business, at the same time they say, but you can't possibly cut our budget because that will lead to Armageddon. In UK and Europe, I think the police reform camp is larger than it is in the U.S. And I think there's also a little bit more openness to this idea that 
the police don't really want to be in the schools and don't really want to be in charge of mental health services and that they would much rather the state use other tools to resolve those things. And actually, the book has been surprisingly popular in law enforcement circles in the UK and not at all talked about within American policing circles. On that point, I think it's it's a really interesting one, this, this question of how you make the case for the role of the police to be scaled back and the role of other ways of dealing with social problems to fill the gap, as it were. So to say we want to direct resources away from the police and towards mental health care, towards refuges for homeless people, towards education, towards... Community-based violence reduction efforts. Yeah. Exactly. To all of those things. Obviously, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I think I think it's actually logical to, to a lot of people, including those who would not necessarily naturally be drawn to the defund the police campaign. And I mean, given particularly that a lot of the communities affected by these issues are lower income or working class communities, politically, certainly in the UK and in a lot of other countries, I think, including the US, the view by politicians often seems to be that you don't win working class communities with liberal policies like that, because these are the communities where people look to the police to protect them on their walk home from the bus stop or where people feel most vulnerable, understandably, to these social dysfunctions. I mean, what what is the best way to make those arguments and popularise them more widely across society? Because I suppose one one question I have about about the the term defund the police, while the the thinking behind it is obviously completely sane and rational, I wonder whether it, it risks putting off some political supporters who actually comp- would buy into the logic of it, but might be put off by the idea that they, they're they signing up for some sort of anarchy by supporting it. What, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I don't have any particular allegiance to that three-word phrase. That's not a phrase that, that I use in the book or that, I, you know, I use in the organizing that I'm associated with particularly. It does signal the explicit rejection of police reform, and I think that's very important. But I think as much as we can be concrete about what these new investments would look like and the ways in which these interventions would make people safer than they are today without all the collateral consequences of policing is really the way to go. So what it looks like typically is a campaign to address some specific public safety challenge where people have a pretty good sense that policing is not the ideal solution. So like getting police out of the mental health business. Between a quarter and a half of all people killed by police in the United States are having a mental health crisis. And it's just regular headline news of police killing another person having a mental health crisis. And so what we have to do is we have to increase people's awareness that there are other possible solutions out there. Right. And where that work is happening, we see cities beginning to shift resources in exactly that way. Are there examples of good practice, either in the US or internationally, that you'd, that you'd point to? Yeah, I mean, that's really a big point of the book is through hundreds of endnotes to lay out these examples of how we could do things differently. So in Austin recently, they diverted money from the police budget to pay for supportive housing for folks who are sleeping rough. This is going to reduce the impact of those people on the community. It's going to reduce calls for police interventions. It's going to reduce the workload of police. That's a very concrete intervention that I think is going to make people's lives better and the community better. We have 
a growing number of these non-police crisis response teams that deal with folks having a mental health crisis or maybe a substance use crisis. And the data from those programs is extremely positive. In Oregon, they're diverting 20% of all 911 calls to these services, and they only request police assistance in less than 1% of the calls that they go out on. So this stuff works. It saves money. We can look at efforts to decriminalize drugs, to get police out of the sex work business. We have examples in New Zealand and Portugal and parts of the U.S. where this works. And it's about overcoming this kind of moralistic attitude about these social problems and say, look, if we want to save lives, we have to quit wagging our finger at people and sending the police We need to invest in public health strategies, targeted economic development initiatives, et cetera. I think the point about category shift or a mentality shift is very interesting. I mean, you mentioned the example of Portugal. And what strikes me from from what I've I've read about Portugal's drug policies is the way that, yes, it's about decriminalization, but it's also about a whole different way of seeing drugs as a health issue primarily and not a law and order issue. So it seems to me once you start looking at a policy issue in a totally different framework like that, you can do quite radical things. That's right. And voters here in Oregon, in the U.S., recently voted to decriminalize low-level possession of all drugs, similar to Portugal, and instead frame this as a public health problem to create new spending for public health interventions. And I think this is going to save lives, and it's also going to produce some racial justice. And that's true also with the, the raft of marijuana legalization victories that we've had here in recent years. I think, fortunately, that conversation is beginning to really take shape in the UK about how to more forcefully get the, get the police out of the drug business in the UK. You also saw it in, uh, in Baltimore this past year, right, where they effectively drugs were decriminalized and they saw crime overall go down, right? And so Baltimore will no longer prosecute drug possession, prostitution, and other low-level offenses. So it, I think for American listeners, this is not just something that's happening in Portugal. This is you know, I'm in D.C. Baltimore is very, uh, very close to home. Yeah. And but what's needed in Baltimore that's lacking still is mm-hmm. the new investments in ramping up the public health infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it's great to reduce the criminalization and the involvement of the criminal legal system, but it has to be combined with public health interventions Otherwise, people are going to continue to have overdoses and we're going to see other kinds of problems. I mean, it's what you were saying at the very beginning about the, the two sides of the ledger, making sure that they're, that they're balanced, that you're not going all in on one and not on the other. That's right. I have one last question for you before we move on to our, our next segment, which is that I think, not to just keep throwing straw man arguments at you, but I think often, at least here in the States, one argument that's brought up a lot is, well this police force can't be structurally racist because it's majority not white. Or, well, this police force looks like the community that it's policing. And therefore, you know, how could how could the police be racist? And I know that you write on this and so wanted to give you a chance to explain why like this isn't about that. Yeah. And the converse of that is, well, if we just hire more black and brown police officers, that will fix the problems of racial disparities in policing. So the problem is, of course, there is a legacy of structural racism within policing itself, which can't be ignored. But possibly more importantly, is that the mission being given to police by elected officials is also a form of structural racism that the decision to turn the social problems of 
poor non-white communities into problems of crime to be solved by policing rather than problems of market failure, problems of austerity, defunding of essential social services, places an extra burden on on those communities. So when the police say, well, we can't be racist because we just go where the crime is, where the calls for service are, yes, but they don't get calls for service to address predatory lending practices. They don't get calls for service to deal with landlords poisoning tenants with lead paint. Those things aren't constructed as crime problems to be solved by policing. But the problems of poor people, like sleeping outdoors, that is turned into a crime problem to be solved by policing. And so the result of that process is going to be mostly black and brown people being policed, being arrested, being put into the prison system. Okay, well, that that brings us on to the next segment of this podcast, which is one that we like to call You Ask Us. Our listener question this week is anonymous, and it is, what element of the justice system are you most confident will change in the short term? Well, I think we're seeing a couple things go on simultaneously in the U.S., which is the reduction in the use of cash bail has become a big Mm -hmm. movement and is important on that one side of the ledger of reducing the impact of the criminal justice system. And the other thing is, I think we're going to continue to see the rise of non-police mental health crisis teams, and that this is going to really be important for saving lives in the U.S. I have just one follow-up, which is, I wrote this piece last year on COVID and prisons and jails, and one of the women whom I interviewed said, this is a horrible thing, and COVID's spreading through these institutions so quickly. And she said, if there's one good thing that will come out of this, maybe it's that we will rethink Like these people don't need to be in prisons and jails and maybe having a virus tear through these institutions will drive that home for people. As we start vaccinating people and hopefully move out of COVID-19, do you think that that has actually happened? No, I really thought that maybe COVID would be a moment of reckoning as it has just run wild through our prison systems, but we have not seen any kind of humane rethinking Mm -hmm. of access to medical care and why we're putting all these people in prison. I feel like the media have not taken that particularly seriously and that the positive focus right now is really at the local level in developing these alternatives to policing. And I think that that's where we should keep the momentum. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of food for thought there. What you say, I think, resonates not just in in the US and the UK, But I mean, it's amazing how many certainly kind of Western countries recently have had big debates about the roles of their police forces. There's been a wave of protests, as you you may well be aware, in France as well about police violence and racism. I think the combination of a sort of a radical agenda, but with with incremental policy points where you can really move forward quickly is, is very compelling indeed. So keep spreading that message. So with that, we'd like to come to the final section of our podcast, which is our look ahead to the next week in world affairs. Alex, as you're a guest, why don't you start us off? Is there anything in the next seven days in global affairs, whether it's to do with policing or other matters that you will be paying particular attention to? Well, I think two things. I'm very concerned about the increase in violence in Northern Ireland and what is uh, driving the level of conflict there and its relationship to these bigger questions around how Brexit is going to be implemented. 
And then, of course, everyone in the U.S. is watching the George Floyd, Derek Chauvin trial occurring in Minneapolis and waiting to see what the outcome of that will be. Mm-hmm. What do you think the political significance of that will be, of a trial involving such a, an iconic instance of injustice? Well, I think it may be a bit of an anticlimax in the sense that I do expect there to be a conviction, but that that in and of itself is not going to bring about the kinds of substantial changes that are needed to policing in the United States. Mm -hmm. Emily, what will you be looking ahead to? Well, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been tasked with seeing if he can try to form a government. He has six weeks to do so. Apparently, he had positive talks with Naftali Bennett, who's a right-wing political figure in Israel. So I I think many of us will be watching to see if if he forms a government. And if not, what, what happens next? And Jeremy, what about you? What will you be looking ahead to? Of symbolic importance, I think is, as we record this, the news recently broke of the death of Prince Philip, Queen Elizabeth II's consort, which is obviously big news in the UK, but I think also relevant as an international story. One expects that his funeral will follow in the next week or so. We don't have a date for that yet, but that I think will be a big international focal point. But in international news more widely, I'm interested in what happens with the push to reinstate the Iran nuclear deal. There's been reports in the last few days of good progress in talks in Vienna, particularly from Russia and China have both reported that things are moving forward. And obviously, what's needed is for the US to give up the sanctions introduced under the Trump administration, and of course, for Iran to be brought back into compliance with the nuclear deal. But it is a a relatively rare good news story in international affairs at the moment. And it looks like there'll be more on that in the next seven days. So I'll be watching that too. So we'd like to say a big thank you to Alex Vitale for joining us. As a reminder, his book is available now in English and various other languages and soon in its second edition. So do check that out. Thank you very much, Alex. Uh, You're most welcome. And it's also a significant event because this is our last episode of World Review with our Wonderful producer Nick Hilton, who, as some listeners may know, has been the long-standing producer of the New Statesman podcast, but he's also produced every episode of World Review since we launched a bit under a year ago. And I think it's safe to say that the podcast would not have got off the ground without him. And only he knows what patience and technical skill he's brought to the job of keeping us in order and making something audible and coherent out of our ramblings. So we'd also like to say a big thank you to our producer, Nick. Listeners will never know how how the work that Nick put into this podcast, but we do, and we are so eternally grateful for it. Yes, one can't overstate how complicated a podcast involving guests all around the world with varying internet speeds and connections, how complicated that can be. So as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. You can also check out Alex's interview with our colleague Sophie McBain on the episode page of this podcast, along with all of our other podcast episodes, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast. If you liked this podcast, please like, subscribe, review, tell your friends, tell your haters. And for the very last time, Jeremy. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.